Welcome to the Duck Pin Podcast with your host, Brian Griffiths. And now, here's Brian. Many of you may remember that before the Maryland General Assembly session this year, I spoke with Nick Kipke, who at the time was the House Minority Leader of the Republicans in the House of Delegates. Since then, Nick stepped down at the end of session, and joining me this week is the new House Minority Leader, Delegate Jason Buckle. Delegate, thanks for joining us this this week on the show. Thank you very much, Brian. Happy to be here. Well, let's talk about the 2000, Yeah, much like many things these days, including (laughs) the 2021 General Assembly session, which we have have just completed. Um, I know that there is a wide variety of thoughts on the session based on whether you ask the Democrats, whether you ask Governor Larry Hogan. What are your major takeaways from this year's General Assembly session? I mean, I think from a from a process standpoint, it was really very difficult. Uh, no one should complain about that. All of us, all of our constituents in every walk of life have just had a difficult time adapting to COVID-19. Uh, it's kind of hard to do work that requires talking and listening and collaborating and, and that type of interpersonal contact. Hard to do that uh, when all the committee hearings and all of the different political meetings outside of the actual session itself are done through this virtual medium. Uh, And our members weren't all in the same place for session. So about half, a little more than half, it wound up of the House of Delegates was actually in our chamber participating fairly normally. Uh, We all have gotten used to wearing masks, I guess, to different degrees. I don't love it. I don't know very many people who do. Uh, Everybody can talk with a mask on for a little bit. It's hard to talk with a mask on for for a lot of it. So when you sit there for hours and hours and hours at a time with a mask on and then get asked to talk, uh, it's a little bit different procedurally. But that was one of the biggest takeaways is it it was sort of hard to really get the feel of session uh, and to feel like you were putting forth your best effort all the time. From a substantive standpoint, you know, I know Governor Hogan said he thought it was one of the best sessions of his tenure, if not the best. Uh, I think my my predecessor, my friend, your friend, Nick Kipke, said he thought it was one of the worst of his time. Um, I'm not sure exactly that I would say either one. It certainly wasn't the best session that we could have had uh, because we passed some legislation, as we often do, that is is really difficult, I think, for the majority of Marylanders, particularly the so-called police reform bills, which, you know, we can talk about at more length. I think they were really uh, very difficult and are going to be a net negative for public safety. It also probably wasn't the worst session that it could have been. Uh, a lot of things like what the Democrats euphemistically called the, the Maryland Green New Deal, uh, Senator Paul Pinsky's sort of vision of AOC type legislation that that died, that did not get passed. Uh, some of the landlord tenant bills, which originally started out as San Francisco style hard left, you know, who would ever want to be a landlord under these rules? A lot of them got substantially watered down. A few of them didn't even pass in the last days of the session. Uh, and we didn't really raise anyone's taxes. So, you know, I'm, I'm a, a person who's on the House Ways and Means Committee. We deal with taxes and education as sort of some of our primary and, and gaming. Uh, any year that we don't go in and raise taxes, to me, is, you know, we at least did something right. So we didn't really raise anyone's taxes, particularly. We had lots of proposals by the Democrats to raise a lot of people's taxes, and we beat back all of those. So I wouldn't say that it was a great session. Um, I would say there were some things that got done that were positive. And there were some things that got done that, you know, are troubling and and we need to confront in the years to come. Let's talk about the police reform bill. Um, You know, I think a lot of people there's a lot of mixed mixed feelings on the police reform bill. Um, There are some 
okay things in there, and then there are some absolutely ridiculous things there that deal with some of the bureaucracy, some of the 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 rights of police officers being, in my opinion, violated when you start right. throwing out um, and when you start throwing out some of these more onerous um, regulations regarding putting any complaints, substantiated or not, out into the public right. domain. Um, you know, just kind of tell us a little bit about your broad perspective, you know, a little more so on the specifics of the bill. And I think that the, the real interesting question, this is something that I think the, the De- Democratic caucus certainly doesn't think of. What impact is that going to have on police departments in your district out in Western Maryland called the, the Columbia, I mean, excuse me, the Cumberland Police Department, Frostburg Police, um, right. you know, the sheriff's departments out there. What kind of impact is this going to have on them both administratively and financially? I mean, we, we think that from a morale standpoint, obviously, it's going to affect police officers negatively across the state. And, you know, sometimes when you say that, some of the Democratic advocates say, well, what, what difference does it make? Who cares about their morale? Morale is why you get up in the morning. Uh, police officers, we all understand a lot of police officers, those, those folks that are out uh, on the streets, those folks that are out in patrol cars, those folks that are out in gang units and uh, units that are executing high-risk warrants, they have a job very different than yours and us. They get up in the morning, they kiss their spouse goodbye, they tell their kids goodbye. You and I, 99.99999%, we're coming home in a few hours, life goes on. They have the risk all day long. So when you affect their morale, when you affect their enthusiasm for the job, when you affect the way that they feel about doing the job, I, I think it really has a negative impact. Uh, and that's going to that's gonna happen I'd like to think, I tend to think that in places like Western Maryland, the Eastern Shore, Hartford County, um, there won't be as many negative instances of activists and folks using these new procedures to go against police officers because we're generally very pro-law enforcement communities. But you don't know. Uh, you know, you don't know how it's going to play out in the, in the big picture of things. And to me, I think you hit the nail on the head. One of the two most objectionable things, and there were a handful of really objectionable things in these bill packages. One of them was that they want to allow, it's the law now, they will allow for the public release of complaints made against police officers that were found to be completely false. They were found to just be wrong. So, you know, our friends in Annapolis, our Democratic friends, continuously advocate for expungement for convicted criminals. You did it, you pled guilty, and they still want you to be able to erase that from your record years down the road because, you know, it affects your job uh, prospects, it affects your educational prospects, all these other things. But yet they don't want police officers to be able to expunge from their records or keep from public view. Somebody said that I did something terrible. Maybe someone said that I did something out of a racial animosity or whatever it may be. It was fully investigated and found to be a bunch of baloney, unsubstantiated, completely false. But I have to carry that around in my personnel record for someone to go after. That's simply crazy. That, that's unfair. Uh, it does nothing but target and demonize police officers. So that was one of the worst things. And to me, one of the other worst things was what they call the use of force standard. Uh, so that's where all this starts with, right? It all starts with a police officer went out on the beat that day or went out to investigate a crime, got called into a situation, and someone claims that he or she used excessive force. They, they grab someone, they hit someone, they use their weapon, they use their taser, whatever it may be. that's where all of the problems that have arisen over the last couple of years, that's the fundamental start point of the process. And so in Maryland, you know, we've just had a a sort of the embrace the Supreme court standard that's been there for many, many years. 
of the officer standard is judged objectively and reasonably. So you ask someone looking at it to say, I don't get to Monday morning quarterback. I have to say objectively, if I was that officer in the same situation, would I have reasonably and have done that? Uh, they, they've now changed it to what's called necessary and proportional. It's not as bad as what it could have been, but it's still clearly designed to allow for the activists, the civil rights lawyers, the Monday morning quarterbacks to come in and say, you know, you could have probably arrested my client who in many cases was guilty of doing something, drugs, domestic violence, whatever it may be. You probably could have arrested my client by just restraining him by the shoulder but instead, you pushed him up against the wall, too, because you thought he was trying to struggle with you. And when he went across against the wall, he broke his nose. Well, no one wants to do that. Police aren't out there to rough people up. But if someone's resisting arrest, they have to protect themselves and the other innocent folks in the situation. They protect them first. And so now what you're going to have is someone comes in. Well, that wasn't necessary in proportion. Yeah, maybe he was resisting a little bit, but you were bigger than him. You could have restrained the situation without having to push him or touch him or, or, you know, use the taser, whatever it is. And so I think what you're going to wind up with, particularly in part of the state where you live, where there's a lot of activists and a lot of media who want to turn these things into terrible situations, that a lot of police officers are going to say, I, you know, I don't want to get out of the car. I don't want to engage and interact with this potential criminal. I don't want to take the risk because there's three things that can happen. And two of them are bad. I could wind up getting personally hurt, shot, injured, or I could wind up trying to control this situation to the best of my training and someone makes a complaint against me. God forbid it's a situation, two people of two different races involved. And now I'm accused of being a racist on top of it. So that's what we heard a lot from our police officer friends is this is going to diminish my ability to protect the public uh, because of that change in the use of force standard. And I, and I think, you know, we talked about the use of force standard, you know, applying the same use of force standard in Baltimore City or Prince George's County or Montgomery County, in, in, and you say you're going to apply the same standard to Garrett County, Washington County, Allegheny County, you know, Worcester County. I mean, that is a, a recipe for disaster when you're considering different environments, different levels of, of police officers involved, different crimes that are being committed. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's different dangers. You want to have uniformity. You want to have police officers that respond the same way. So I understand that. But there's definitely different situations. If you're on uh, the, the drug unit, the, the gang unit in some of the worst neighborhoods of, of, say, Baltimore City, and you know that the people that you're coming to serve that warrant on are connected to significant drug gangs and are quite potentially, you know, carrying loaded weapons and have shot them before, uh, that brings a heightened level of, of concern versus, you know, if you're out in, in Somerset County and you're simply serving a warrant for somebody who's, you know, in possession of stolen goods, they own a pawn shop or something. There's different levels that you bring to every experience. And I think any police officer would tell you that uh, it, it's the, now it could have been worse. The original house bill that passed had a litany of very specific actions that you couldn't take without violating the use of force. Things like you couldn't strike a suspect in the chest. You couldn't use your taser twice. There's tons of cases out there, or you're automatically in violation of use of force. You can be criminally charged. There's tons of cases out there where officers have had to try to restrain someone. Sometimes maybe they're under the influence of drugs. Sometimes they're just a large, powerful individual. They've used the taser once, no effect. They've had to use the taser twice, limited effect. So the original House bill passed by some of the most liberal folks you can imagine, they were going to make that automatically illegal. 
So I'm happy that at least we took all of that out in the final product, but it's still bad enough. It's still troubling enough. Uh, combine that with completely getting rid of the law enforcement officers bill of rights and substituting this new process that no one knows how it's going to work. No one knows where you're going to find all of these civilians who are unbiased and yet trained and knowledgeable. So if you're really trained and knowledgeable about policing standards, there's a chance you're either going to be a former police officer and then they'll say you're biased, or there's a chance that you're going to be a, an activist, so to speak, a BLM level activist, and you want on that trial board to go after the police. So you're going to be biased from that perspective. So when you combine all those things together, I think it was just a bad, just a bad package. Some good things that were in it, some things that we liked, some things we could have agreed on and done bipartisanly. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's not good for the public safety of the average Maryland. One of the big bills that did pass uh, late in session was the sports gaming bill. Um, much to my surprise and and delight, quite frankly, because I was really convinced the Democrats were going to really screw this up. Um, Maryland now has, or or will have, assuming the governor signs it, I see no reason why he won't, has one of the more expansive sports gaming operations in the country. Um, I think that it's going to be the highest number of... Um, of gaming licenses available, save for two states, I think it's like Wyoming and Idaho, I think it is, who are completely yeah. uncapped. I mean, we're going to have more sports gaming licenses than even Nevada is going to have, um, which is kind of amazing to think about. Um, right. What do you think the long-term effect of that bill is going to be? Do you think that it's going to have us be able to adequately compete with our neighbors in the gaming sphere, um, you know, since, you know, th- those states, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, even Virginia, ha- had a much bigger right. head start than we have. How soon do you think we're going to be able to to catch up? I'm hopeful. The intent of the legislation, I was pretty involved in it uh, this year through the Ways and Means Committee, and my district has the Rocky Gap uh, Casino Resort in it. So I've, I've been kind of involved with sports gaming and expanding that for several years. I'm hopeful that we'll have at least some of our brick and mortar betting locations, predominantly the casinos, maybe the tracks, uh, maybe sports stadiums. I'm hopeful that we'll have those up and running in advance of the college football and NFL season. So maybe August, August, beginning of September, those facilities are all automatically granted licenses under the legislation. So they have to go through a little bit of a process to simply apply and, and, you know, give the particulars of how they're going to do it. Sports gaming is going to be very regulated. You have to have the technology to show that your bets are being monitored. So we're preventing rigged games and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they'll have to go through that process to show that they're in compliance with the regulations, but they're going to get automatic licenses. So I hope that that can happen over a few months and be up and running. To the bigger question that you asked, I mean, yeah, I think we'll be able to adequately compete with all of our neighbors. I mean, every state and jurisdiction that touches us now already has sports game. So we'll be able to compete because we'll have all the all the casino licensees plus others will be up and running pretty quickly. Uh, do I think that 30 brick and mortar licenses and 60 uh, mobile licenses is probably too much? And you'll actually wind up with, you know, as they used to say back in the days of John Rockefeller, ruinous competition. I think you will. I think that there's probably not a market there for that number of licensees. One thing Maryland's never wanted to do is go to a concept called route gaming, like they have in Pennsylvania a little bit, like they have in Nevada. You know, you can go into a restaurant in Nevada and they have slot machines in the restaurant. You can go to a 7-Eleven in Pennsylvania now and they have slot machines and pull tab games. We've never wanted to do that. 
Uh, we're a pro gaming state by and large. We've, we've done really well with the casinos and tracks, but I don't really ever want to see us go to the point where, you know, your, your, your kid can't go to a Chuck E. Cheese's without dad being able to put 25 bucks on the Ravens game this weekend. So might uh, give me a reason that, to take my kids to Chuck E. Cheese. Finally, <laughs> yeah, exactly. get you out of the house. But, you know, I'm a little concerned that there are so many licenses floating around that some of the people who pay money and get these licenses will find out it's not the economic boon that they thought. There, there's not 60 mobile apps up running in the United States today that really can take the volume of action and have the regulatory compliance and the technology built in. There's not 60 of them today. So I doubt they're going to build them just to have a mobile license in one relatively small state. So we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, that was the first thing I saw when I saw the massive number of licenses. I mean, I think there there is a certain appeal to brick and mortar, obviously, um, with the right. casinos are already existent, obviously. Um, the, state, the, the, the ballparks and stadiums are already there. I think that there will be uh, additional room for – um, for the brick and mortar places for people to go and hang out, I, I agree with you about the sixty licensees for the for the mobile gaming, especially when you consider that all of the casinos and some of the teams have already lined up with gaming partners. I mean, those are the big the, guys. and those are the big boys. Um, right. You know, um, you know, Joe Schmo's gaming app is not going to get a lot of traction anywhere, no matter how much money they pay for right. a for a daggum right. license. You have DraftKings, FanDuel, William Hill, MGM obviously has their own proprietary product. Caesars has their own proprietary product. Barstool is likely going to partner with the casino in Cecil County uh, or, or another entity. Um, you know, the, the top eight, nine, ten of these national mobile apps are probably already going to be linked into the top tier of the brick and mortars. And so I worry about that a little bit. I mean, the Legislative Black Caucus was very concerned based upon what happened with the medical cannabis dispensary and grower situation, they felt like they got shut out of that because of the limitation of the licenses. So they were one of the driving entities pushing, well, more licenses means more opportunities for minority business enterprises to, to get those licenses. I don't have any qualms with that. I mean, we certainly want those folks to be able to participate fully in the industry, but sometimes I worry that, you know, five years from now, if some of those licensees have now gone out of business and they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to get this up and running and found out it's not medical marijuana. It's not just I open a store and I sell and I make money every day. Sometimes casinos lose money in a given week on sports betting. They'll tell you that. And so I'm a little concerned uh, that that may happen, but we'll, we'll hope for the best. I'm just thrilled that we're finally going to get sports betting up. It's going to generate revenue for the state of Maryland. It's going to bring us in competitive alignment with our neighbors and you know, it's going to let me bet 50 bucks on my Steelers every once in a while. And, we'll and we'll get to that at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's funny because it's like it's just how long it's taken us to get here. I mean, God, I was wide, I was writing about, you know, jumping to sports gaming probably 2007, 2008, and it just took this long to get it done. Yep. Um, we could have a whole nother conversation about the, the medical marijuana regime and right. questioning why we just if it's for medical reasons, why we just don't sell it at CVS or something. But that's another story for right. another day. Well, it's not just a pharmaceutical, right? Yeah. Follow the money is all I can say about that. Uh, Kerwin Commission uh, recommendations that veto was overridden at the beginning of session. Um, You know, obviously it was basically just re-upping things that were already passed years ago and then just throwing more money at it. You know, out your way, out your district, obviously you border two states. You've got Pennsylvania, West Virginia. The tax hikes didn't pass this session, but they're coming. 
and we know they're coming, uh, and that the Democrats are going to try to introduce those. You know, I, I understand the reasoning behind Kerwin. Obviously, everybody wants our constitutionally mandated public schools to be as good as possible. This is going to have a, a negative impact on Western Maryland because of those incoming tax increases and the burden on those counties. You've talked to folks in the community. You've talked to leaders in county government. How bad is this going to get for for the counties out there? You know, I think that they're it's still a mixed bag and they're very concerned with putting a specific price tag on because of the way that the bill worked with the veto. Then we passed, you know, whatever they wanted to call Kerwin 2.0 this year that sort of reordered the program. It was a 10 year program of spending. Uh, The first year was under a veto, although I think, to be fair, Governor Hogan spent most of the money that would have been there anyway uh, under Kerwin. It's not like he shorted the entire program. Most of that money still went in. So they reset it back. So it's not really an 11-year program. And so a lot of our county officials are having a hard time coming up with a a real hard number of how much more money do we need to put in. The first few years, it looks like it won't be as much money that they'll have to put in. Most of, I mean, that's how you get anyone, uh, I don't want to use the word addicted, but that's how you get anyone into, into the process, right? Hey, it's all free. It's all good. It's all free. It's all federal money. It's all state money. Don't worry about it. You're four, you're five, you're six. Now you have to pay. And now you're hooked because now you've raised everybody's salaries. Now you've created new programs. Now you've hired new people. And the maintenance of effort requirements too. Right. It's always harder to go back and fire someone or reduce their salary than it is to just have the the discipline uh, to not go over the top from day one. And so the first few years, it may not have a huge impact county by county. But you're absolutely right. There's no way to pay for the 10 or 11 year uh, priced in estimates unless you raise revenue. You have to raise revenue. Uh, We got billions of dollars in free federal money this year. We're spending more money in this fiscal year than has ever been spent in the history of the state of Maryland. We're spending Um, that money may or not may or may not be there next year. And a few years out from now, we recognize that maybe you get 2023, 2024, you're going to need more revenue if you want to keep spending all that kind of money and more revenue in the state of Maryland. I wish it meant the economy grows by leaps and bounds and we just organically grow more revenue. We take the same slice of a bigger pie and everybody's happy. But usually in Maryland, what it means is our economy doesn't grow by leaps and bounds. We just want to take a bigger slice of of everybody's pie. And, and that means tax hikes. Yeah. Democrats haven't figured out yet that the economy grows when you cut taxes, not when you not when you raise them, especially given our unique border situation uh, that we have here. Well, that's absolutely right. Let's we've, let's let's move on from 2021, uh, the session okay. at least. And let's talk about now. Um, obviously, you know, Nick Kipke announced early in session he was going to step down as minority leader. You have been elected the new minority leader, along with uh, Chris Adams from the Eastern Shore as your mm-hmm. minority whip. What made you decide that you wanted to seek this position? I mean, it is a it is a thankless position uh, to a certain extent, uh, yeah. much like many positions in in leadership. So, what made you think um, that you wanted to serve in this capacity? Yeah, you know, I tell people that I'm not sure that I'm the smartest smartest guy around. It's it's a lot more work for the exact same pay. Um, you know, I was I was thankful uh, probably four or five years ago. Uh, Nick Kipke and Kathy Jaliga asked me, invited me to be involved in sort of the senior leadership team. I was my official title was chief deputy whip for whatever that means. Didn't really have a particular bent to it. Um, and you know, I'm not a career politician uh, at all. I don't plan on being a career politician. Coming from Allegheny County, I don't have any real aspirations of you're going to run for governor or U.S. senator or any of those those 
things that sometimes people get stars in their eyes. We don't have county executives, you know, we're a relatively small county, 75,000 people or so. So to me, I looked at it and said, you know, I think I've got six, seven, eight, nine years left uh, that I can offer service to my community and, and hopefully to the state and to the Republican Party that I believe in in the state. And maybe this is the best way for me to do it. Uh, so a lot of my colleagues were very supportive of that idea. Uh, they wanted me to do it. They wanted me to be involved. And so like a moron, <laughs> I do it and, uh, you know, went out and, and have undertaken it. But I, I'm very happy. I'm very honored and humbled, really, uh, to have had the support of so many folks. And we have a great group of people. We, we really do. We have 42 people. Uh, I said this when I ran for the position. Nobody knows what we go through except us. It's hard to express it to other people. It's hard to express it to your spouse, to your friends, to the media, to the staff. Because it's a tough job. You know, it, there's nothing else I've ever done. I'm a professional litigator by trade. I mean, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I do litigation, trial law. I'm not really used to losing quite like that. I'm not used to going into situations and like, hey, no matter what I do, probably going to lose today over and over and over again. And it, it takes something out of you. You know, we have 42 and they have 99 and I can count. So I, I don't really plan on us showing up and, and winning recorded votes very often. Uh, but we have to get up every day and every session and every year and keep fighting the good fight and keep using every strategic angle that we can to try to prevent some of these bad things from happening and try to make some good things for happening for the folks we represent. I think Republicans represent around 2 million people. Uh, you know, if you look at the districts that they represent, it's around 2 million people out of around six in the state of Maryland. And so that's a lot of people and they deserve a voice and they deserve to be represented well. And so that's that's kind of why I did it. I thought I could help. Uh, and I'm very proud to be in that position. And, and I really think that we have 42 fighters. We have 42 people that have a diverse group of skill sets. And I want to help them do the best that they can do uh, in their job. One of the interesting things now that um, we've had this change in leadership is that um, the four leaders – uh, in the chamber, in the minority party, in both chambers, um, yourself and Delegate Adams, as well as State Senator Brian Simonair, my si- my senator, right. the the minority leader in the Senate, and the Senator Mike Huff, the the minority whip, all four from disparate geographic areas. You know, you've got Western Maryland, Eastern Shore, the Baltimore area, the Washington area. I'm using air quotes there um, for right. Washington area, and concluding Frederick. Do you guys think you know that working together that will bring you guys a unique perspective that will help offer something to all Marylanders? I mean, obviously, particularly the Western Shore and the Eastern Shore are the forgotten by Democrats. I'm not even sure they could point them out on a map. Yeah. Um, you know, do you think that's going to offer a more full-service perspective to all Marylanders having such geographic, uh, geographically diverse representation? I think so. I hope so. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with Brian Simonair and Mike Huff. I've known Mike for years and I, I, you know, I've known Brian mainly his daughter, Megan, when she served as your delegate, she was on my committee for four years. And, you know, I got to be uh, very friendly with Megan, uh, really thought well of her and, and met her dad a little bit through that capacity. I hope that that's the case, because there's a lot of things that unite us as Marylanders, as Republicans, center right, however you want to look at it. There's a lot of things that unite us, taxes, public safety. But we do have some differences. Uh, folks where you live maybe have a little bit more sensitivity and even on the Eastern shore to Chesapeake Bay issues, really sort of Frederick County West, Carroll County West, the Chesapeake Bay is not a daily monthly part of our lives. You know, it's something that we drive over a lot of times to get to ocean city, something like that. Uh, and also there are things that are in 
Western Maryland. There are things that are in Anne Arundel County that are that are different to us um, that not everybody has the same perspective on. We have more of a natural resources based economy. We are hard up against two states, Pennsylvania and West Virginia, that have very different regulatory laws. They have very different labor laws and minimum wage laws. And it really affects us more so than what it probably affects Montgomery County or Anne Arundel County or Howard County. So I do think it'll be interesting. We have a, a, that, that real diversity of background uh, for our four leaders. I think we're going to work together. And it's important. You know, if, if Republicans want to win in Maryland, you've got to really throw the perfect game. You've got to do very well in Anne Arundel County. You've got to do very well in Baltimore County. You've got to do reasonably well in Howard County. You've got to put up a real fight and get to Republicans and moderates and folks who are interested in your message in Montgomery County. And then you just have to crush those numbers in Carroll and Hartford and the Eastern Shore and Washington, Allegheny, Garrett. You've got to win by wide margins. You've got to win all the delegate seats if you really want to be competitive. So I think bringing a little bit of all that together is uh, hopefully going to be a good strategy for our success. Talking about competing and, and winning, particularly, one of your jobs over the course of the next year is going to be recruiting candidates. Um, how much thought have you put into that so far? How challenging has that been to, to kind of plan out not knowing exactly what the redistricting plan is going to look like, yeah. knowing that it's going to be very late in the process without yeah. the population? I mean, the numbers aren't going to even come out until September 30th. How right. much is that going to complicate your plan to recruit candidates and win next year? I mean, I think it is certainly going to complicate it. It's, it's the biggest uh, sort of uh, unknown out there is you're recruiting people to run. People are coming to you interested to run. You're sort of vetting them and you can't really say exactly what their district will be. You can give them you know, a rough idea. They're in a County, they're in an existing district, but yeah, we've given a lot of thought uh, to begin. I mean, we've only sort of been in these positions for less than a week, roughly. But we have given a lot of thought, and I think that's one of the most important things. Good candidates can win in a lot of districts in Maryland. Uh, The national environment certainly has something to do with elections nowadays. We all understand there's more polarization maybe than ever. Fundraising is certainly important, and we're going to fundraise to the greatest of our ability, and I think we'll be in good position. But at the end of the day, you know, sometimes House of Delegate elections, particularly if it's single member districts, which is what I've always served in, there's only 40 odd thousand people. Uh, in population. There might only be 15,000 voters who show up. And so if you have candidates who really are built into those communities, who have name recognition, who have respect of people, maybe they lead the local, you know, youth sports league, they're a doctor, they're a school teacher, principal, beloved principal of local high school. Those people give you so much more of a chance to win, regardless of what the the national mood is because people know them and people like them and they, they, they believe in them to, to do these positions. So we're looking hard, Chris Adams and I, and our whole team, we're looking hard across the state uh, for people who want to step up. It's, it's a tough job. It's um, it's weird. You know, people say, well, it's a part-time job and you get paid X amount of money, but it doesn't feel like a part-time job because you have to sort of relocate yourself a lot of us, you have to relocate physically. You have to relocate your mental focus for about three, three and a half months to Annapolis. And then the rest of the year, you kind of try to do the best you can, your job, your family, your home life, your local life, but you still have to do the delegate job. So it's it's not an easy job. The Democrats sometimes have it easier because they just recruit people who already work for state and local government. You know, I mean, 
I love them personally, a lot of them, but half of my colleagues probably already work for local government. You know, you get to meet them. You're like, what do you do? Oh, I already work for uh, Prince George's County government. I already work for Montgomery County. I already work for, you know, some state entity. So it's easier for them because they can just take their three months off and then slide right back into government service like no one missed them. Uh, We don't have very many people like that. But candidate recruitment is very, very important. Uh, We'd like to get a, a great group of folks who have connections to their districts, who are running for the right reasons, uh, who are committed to running hard races and, and, and difficult races and working hard. Uh, and we'll support them 100% when we find those people. You mentioned uh, living in, and running in a single-member district, which makes you very unusual compared to a lot of your Republican colleagues who don't have, um, I don't know, I, I want to say that luxury, but I'll ask you, do you think it's easier running in a single member district as opposed to a three member district? And do you think that our, our chances of winning more seats in 2022 will increase with single member districts if they're able to be implemented? For me personally, I I like it. It's really all I know. I'm not saying this. I don't want anyone to misconstrue this as a sexist phrase, but you know, that expression, two men enter, one man leave, whether it's women, men, doesn't matter. My opponent in the last race was woman, very nice woman. Um, but I like that. I, I like the concept of this is about myself and my opponent and our ideals. And it's not about slates and, you know, backroom politics and who finishes third and, and all those kind of factors. Other people get used to that, have been used to that, and they like it. Uh, but I think personally, it's probably the best way to do the House of Delegates. Uh, I do think that there's a very good chance that if we have single member districts implemented across the state, that Republicans could potentially be more successful. I also think that minority Democratic candidates could be more successful. Uh, the, the, when you get the, the voters a little bit closer to the politicians, uh, when you break the districts down to the reasonable size that they should be, if you took 6 million people divided by 141 delegates, that's what you'd come up with. Uh, I think that that increases the chances for folks to break through as opposed to I've just been tapped by the party machine and none of you really know who I am. I mean, that's the truth. In a lot of large jurisdictions, most of the voters don't know who in the heck the delegates and the senators are because they don't get a lot of media coverage. Uh, Media coverage in Montgomery County is about congressmen and senators and who's the secretary of energy because they live in your neighborhood in Rockville or whatever it is. They don't really cover local politics the same way, state politics the same way. So single member districts probably will be good for us. There's no way to say that it's automatically going to be good for us because you don't know what the districts will look like, what the environment will be. But my big thing with it, Brian, is just this. How is it not fundamentally unfair that if you live in, say, Frostburg, Maryland, you have one delegate. That's me. You only get one. But if you live in Gaithersburg in Montgomery County, you have three. You can call three different people up and leverage your political relationships as a constituent to try to get things done, to get your voice heard. That to me is just fundamentally unfair that Maryland has these different systems. You live in a district, I believe that has two, two members. And until two and until miles away and until 2014, it was three. So right, it was three. And then they broke it into two and, a few, and then they took one out a few. So a few miles away from you in say Brooklyn park, that, that person only has one delegate. Mm-hmm. And then in, in Severna park in Pasadena, you have two delegates. In a sub-district that was to... drawn specifically to take out one former delegate. I mean, that's exactly right. why that de- yeah, that district was drawn. And, and, and right. to your point, it's like, you know, either 
either to, in, if, to, the fair way to do it, everybody gets single members or everybody has three. None of this, you know, this haphazard yeah. stuff. And the, obviously, the, the, the mix and matching really, I don't understand how a, a, a court, how a political observer would sit there and say, well, that's rational and fair. I, I want it to be all single member districts because I think that's the right way to go. That's the way almost every other state in America does it. I think there's only a handful of states that still have multi-member districts for their effectively their house of representatives delegates whatever you call it and you know we get told all the time that well california is doing it new york's doing it we should do it well california and new york they don't have multi-member districts so you know if that's what the democrats like is to follow their lead Maybe we should follow their lead on everything. So, Well, yeah, that, that, they only do that when it benefits them politically. That's, Speaking that's of fair. political benefits, um, last week, obviously, a lot of moving pieces in statewide elections. Commerce Secretary Kelly Schultz announced she was running for governor. Obviously, yeah. other candidates may may hop into that race. Um Harford County Executive Barry Glassman is running for comptroller. If I remember correctly, he's the first elected official to run for the Republican nomination for comptroller, at least in my lifetime. Um, Maybe. Yeah, and, um, you know, setting up to be a very strong top of the ticket. How much is that going to help recruiting efforts? We know that it helps at the ballot box to have strong Republican candidates at the top of the ticket. How much is that going to help your recruiting and fundraising efforts to know that there will be a very solid Republican team at the top of the ballot? I, I hope that it will. Uh, I think that it will. Uh, I've gotten to know Kelly Schultz pretty well uh, over the years serving in Annapolis. And when I first got elected, she was still a delegate for, I don't know, about a week, two weeks from Frederick County uh, until she went to the Department of Labor, Licensing and Regulation, the secretary initially. So I have a lot of uh, uh, good feelings for, for, for Kelly. And uh, I'm happy that she's running. Uh, I think she'll do a good job. You know, we don't know exactly who else is going to emerge, but I'm having a tough time thinking of anyone else at this point who's going to emerge that would make me think they could do a better job as our nominee. So, you know, I do think it will help us. It really comes down to this, too. It's the degree of uh, correlation and coordination. Uh, And that's what I said, you know, a few minutes ago. Republicans, we got to throw a perfect game. And one of the things that happened in the 2018 election, you know, Governor Hogan was obviously a very, very strong candidate, and he did extremely well, beat Ben Jealous, but we didn't do very well at the state legislative level. We didn't do very well at the county executive level. And that's not anybody's fault, but looking back on it in retrospect, we weren't really very well coordinated. We weren't terribly well aligned where we were sort of pitching the same message with the same folks and the same target audience. Uh, and so my hope is, is that in 2022, we have a very aligned group. We realize that sometimes you have to have different messages for different audiences. But at the end of the day, our Republican gubernatorial nominee, our comptroller nominee, our county executive nominees, and our legislative team realize that there, there's no success in politics by yourself. And I think Governor Hogan has realized that. I, mean, I have a good relationship with the governor. I think he's realized after, you know, God knows how many veto overrides we've had in the last seven years that as much as he would like to completely turn, you know, change Maryland is what his phrase was. You can't really change it without that legislative team to protect your vetoes, to advance your objectives. And he's tried to do that. And I think he'll keep trying to do that. But I'm hopeful that, you know, Kelly Schultz, Barry Glassman, these good people that run will have a, a very, very competitive campaign and and I think will be in good shape. That's that's my hope. One last question before I get you out of here. Of course, I asked sure. this question completely tongue-in-cheek. 
You know, a state full of Baltimore Ravens and Washington football team fans. How in the world did we wind up with a minority leader who's a Pittsburgh Steeler fan? <laughs> and in your so, defense, and in your defense, Cumberland's about halfway between Baltimore and Pittsburgh. So I will say that is. in your defense. So, so I grew up in Allegheny County, Maryland, and so we are equidistant to Pittsburgh, Washington, and Baltimore. We're about about two hours, depending on how you drive, from the fringes of each of the cities. And when I was a kid, we got all of the media markets. If you live in Frostburg, the western edge of our county, it's predominantly Pittsburgh. If you live in Cumberland, the Vale, where I live, was predominantly Washington, Baltimore. And so uh, I was just sort of born to it. I mean, I, I like the Baltimore Colts. They left when I was – my father lived in Catonsville when I was a kid. When my parents were divorced. My father lived in Catonsville. And he actually got season tickets to the Baltimore Colts, I think, in 1982. I think it was, 82 or 83, the last year they were there. It was the strike year. We went to, I think, one game, uh, and then they went on strike. I didn't get to come down for the other games. He assured me, don't worry, buddy. Next year I'm, I'm getting even better season tickets. We're going to be at the 40-yard line. Me, you, your grandfather, we're going to go to all the Colts games. Couldn't be a bigger Johnny Unitas fan than my grandfather. And what happened? The SOBs packed up in the Mayflower trucks and moved to Indiana. So at that point in time, you know, the Steelers were a dominant franchise. I rooted for the Steelers. My grandfather actually gravitated. He was a big Joe Gibbs fan. He was very serious about his faith and really liked Joe Gibbs. And he gravitated to the Redskins. So I did a little bit too. And then I went to college at George Mason in Northern Virginia, which was very near where the Redskins complex was at the time. So my college years, much I loved the Steelers, I got very involved with the Redskins. And I'll be honest, I don't have enough time to root for three teams. So, <laughs> so the Steelers and Redskins were it, and the Ravens are our rival anyway. And just tough luck. Yeah, we won't hold it against you. Folks want to reach out, want to uh, talk to you about running for office, want to help out and give a donation. How can they do that? So the, probably the easiest way, and, and I, I can't remember all the darn, you know, dot .com, dot .us, M-L-I-S, but if you, if you just put my name, Jason, B-U-C-K-E-L, uh, not buckle like a shoe, buckle like German, which were pretty German, B-U-C-K-E-L, uh, if you put that into the, to the World Wide Web machine, you're, you're going to quickly find, you put a house of delegates, you can find my official email if you want to reach out and contact me. You'll also find email resources and uh, things for our caucus to discuss political things. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Delegate Jason Buckle, the new House Minority Leader, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on the new gig, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Brian, very much. Appreciate it. No problem. This has been the Duckpin Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and download.